Our scripture lesson today comes from the good news, the gospel according to St. Mark. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 2 and look at Jesus' ministry uh, as we get ready. Next week's Palm Sunday, friends, and then Easter. So we are on this last teaching session right before we get to Jerusalem. Let's share in God's good word together. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So for Lent, we have been walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We've been at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. We have been at the seashore, the Lake of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, all the same place there uh, with Tiberius and Capernaum on the north and west and then all the other people on the east side. And we have seen Jesus reach out and reach out and reach out and widen the circle at every turn. And today we come to very pointed stories about sinners and outcasts and the poor and God himself resides there. This is what Jesus chooses to do with his life in his very short ministry, just a few years. And this is how he spends his time. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And we are going to look at this teaching right before we head to Jerusalem next week with Palm Sunday. And so when the Bible talks about sinners, I'll I'll never forget this. I was um, at Willow Creek Community Church up in Chicago, Illinois, about 20 years ago. And they simply asked the question, how does God feel about sinners? How does God feel about sinners? And at that time, Madonna was a big deal. They put her, you know, mug up there. How does God feel about Madonna? Of course, the answer is God loves sinners. And, it, and, it, and to some degree, it still is shocking today as it was 20 years ago, as it was 2,000 years ago. How can a holy and just and wonderful God love sinners? And there's a part in all of us that goes, like me. How? Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about what does the Bible mean by the term sinner. If you were to look in your footnote, if you have a study Bible, it's, it's going to say something like this. That a sinner in Jesus' day, in this context, in the way the gospel writers write about it, it's a Jew. It's, right, he's not talking about, about the outsiders. A sinner was somebody within the community of faith who chose not to observe the dietary or other laws. It was somebody who, when they had worked with meat, didn't wash their hands. It was somebody, if they had worked with blood, didn't do the ritual cleansing that was needed to bring back. It was somebody, if they had a skin disease, a skin disorder, or or they were outside the law in any way, they were known as a sinner. And they were outside until the priest allowed them back into community, until the Day of Atonement, where they had come to the temple and made things right. They were on the outside. They were sinners if they had broken a dietary law or another law. So, any of you all go over the speed limit on your way to church this morning? Sinners. (laughs) Sinners. <laughs> right? You have broken the law. That's, that's all it is. I mean, it, it doesn't have this huge, overly judgmental piece to it, although that, that comes around. But I'm pretty sure, um, I love this statistic, that um, about 85% of Americans think that we are above average drivers. That's funny to me. Right? Right? We, all, we all like to think of ourselves in certain ways, but that, that's why we start every service here. Good morning, saints. And then we say what? Good morning, sinners. It's who we are. Both of those things redeemed by God's grace and still in need of his love. 
And Jesus spent a great deal of time with people whom religious people saw as less than. They really did. They saw them as less than. And, and we don't like to think this about ourselves, but, but all of us have some people in our life um, that we think of as, as less than. Now, now, we're not going to admit that out loud, um, but there are people who, and now you just get to pick whatever you value. Uh, some, for some people, it's people who have less money. Uh, you know, people who have less money than you do are lazy. Uh, people who have more money than you are entitled, right? Or it's family money, or it, they're lucky. Right? And that's just how people think, right? Uh, you have a, a neighbor on one side, and their car's broken down, and you think, well, you're not a very good steward of the resources God's given you. And the next person drives up in a brand new Escalade, and you go, gaudy. <laughs> right? I mean, wh- where is it? Right? Pretty much, unless someone's exactly like you, you judge them. Because that means you don't have to look at yourself. And, and there's a part in all of us, that, and Jesus knows this about folks, particularly religious folks. We can think of other folks as less than. I always love to kind of gig the people who show up on a really cold and snowy day, you know, because you made it to church. But we're not better than because we made it to church on a snowy day. But it feels like it. But we're not. And Jesus knew that. And he wanted to remind us that there, there is no less than in the kingdom. And that's a really important question for you to think about. When you go to heaven, if nobody's less than you, can you stand it? Because there will be no one less than you in heaven. And there will be no one greater than you in heaven other than Jesus himself. No less than. Jesus abhorred religious people who made others feel small. When you want to see Jesus get upset, when, I mean the very few times in the, in the text where you see Jesus become enraged, it was about religious people trying to make other people, sinners, feel small or outside. From God, but often people will talk about Jesus cleaning out the temple with the with the money changers because, as we've talked about a lot around here, you know, the thing was, uh, if you needed to sacrifice two turtle doves, um, a turtle dove in Nazareth might cost you fifty cents, but a turtle dove at the temple might cost you fifty bucks because it's a temple turtle dove, and they were happy to make the difference on your back. And that back was the difference between whether you could be rectified with God, reconciled with God or not. And there were people that are happy to take advantage of that. Now, I know no churches today would ever take advantage of trying to get people to do things they wanted them to do in the name of Jesus. That could never happen today. Or a political party or a neighborhood association or grandma. Or, you know, you know. So when you're, when you're raising up your kids, I, I've said this a couple times before, but it's worth repeating. If you, if, when you, if you have your kids and they're not going to bed, don't tell them Pastor Mark and Pastor Andy and Pastor Creighton are going to be mad if they don't go to bed. <laughs> we love your kids whenever time they go to bed, right? And God loves you. God loves you. Hear that. God loves you right where you are. And if you're open to it, he can help raise you up from there. Because he wants you to have a good and wonderful and long, beautiful life. So Jesus loves sinners. That's the bottom line. Will you say that with me? Jesus loves sinners. And that includes you. Includes me. So who is this uh, Levi that we're talking about in this story? Well, friends, it is staggering. It is Matthew who is writing the gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector. And this is an unbelievable pairing. Staggering. People are like, Matthew? What? I mean, no. If you would look out around all the folks that Jesus could choose from, Matthew was not on the list. Um, Adam Hamilton writes in his book, The Way, he says, it would be as if I went to a businessman who owned four or five of our city's strip clubs. 
And he says, you know, I can tell you're really good with business. And you've got some, you know, good people skills. So I'm going to ask you to come on as our associate pastor. I mean, imagine, you know, um, that, that Creighton and I introduced to you our, our new associate pastor. He's successfully run some strip clubs and, uh, you know, some, uh, he's a gifted leader uh, and manager. Hasn't been to seminary, but we really think he's got potential. Has, you know, best predictor of past behavior, future behaviors, past behavior. And he's been successful, you know. Now, I say that as, as a sort of a shocking statement as Adam did because I want us to get our attention. There was no such thing as an okay tax collector. These were people who had enough money to buy a contract from Rome and say, I'm, Rome has to get X number of dollars from this region. And then I'm free to collect as much as I want and keep the difference. And everybody knew that. You were taking, stealing, really, from your own people. And this is who Jesus chose. You can imagine this was not a wildly popular choice, even among the disciples. And Jesus chooses to eat with this man. And in the Middle East, breaking bread with someone had major significance. It was the equivalent of saying, I publicly proclaim you as someone I choose to associate with. Jesus is saying, this Matthew, this tax collector, this person who's way outside that everybody hates, he's with me and I'm with him. We're family now. And when Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, what he's saying is, this is what God is like. We understand that later in the Bible, we're going to learn that Jesus is the perfect image of God come to earth. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the God of all the universe is like, look at Jesus. He is the perfect representation of God himself. This is what God is like. That's why he came, that we might know him intimately. No longer as slaves or subjects, but as family, as sons and daughters of the mighty God. That's what this is about. I choose to associate with you. And the guests, the guests themselves, they were astounded to have a Jewish rabbi eat with them. They could not believe it. Here is a Jewish rabbi sitting right with them. What is he doing? And and not only are they wondering that, Um, because of Matthew, but they're also wondering it on what's going to happen to Jesus. They were scared for him as well. And why would this be? Why would this be? Well, if you look at Luke 15, 1, which is really the gospel within a gospel, it's the place where you would find, you know, the parable of the sheep and the coin and the lost son. Look at how those stories begin. We won't go through them, but this is what people were saying about Jesus already. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners, right? All, All of them. They're like, what? Matthew's in? we got to check this out. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. They were interested. I wonder, friends, is there anybody that's not a Christian that's interested in what you have to say? Is there anybody among us anymore that has such a winsome, loving, kind, generous spirit and personality and relationships with people that people who don't know Jesus are drawn to you too because of your love and generosity and grace? around town and of course the pharisees the religious people they don't like it at all and the scribes they were grumbling you would think they would say wow look at this this is power no 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 they're grumbling. this fellow jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them well why is that such a big deal well because the pharisees entire life is about being separated from those sinners that's what gave them their status that's what gave them their livelihood that's what they were about was being separate from that so that they could better hear god Better lead people and let them know the way to life as they saw it. Adam Hamilton writes it like this. It's in your notes. Religious people say things like, God loves sinners but hates their sin. Have you heard that? 
Maybe you've said that. But when you're one of the sinners, that phrase sounds different than it sounds to the righteous people who say it, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. Religious people say things like God loves sinners but hates the sin. But when you're one of the sinners in that category, it sounds different to you. And what I found over 20 years of ministry is that it's all smoke and mirrors, friends. It's all smoke and mirrors because what happens is everybody has sin in our life. Every one of us. There's nobody except for Jesus that doesn't have sin in their life. That's just the case. And you know what? Over 20 years of ministry and thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people I've worked with now, not once have I had a young man come up to me and say, Pastor Mark, you know, I'm really struggling with pornography. I hope you'll preach on that on Sunday. Not once. But I cannot even count on two hands the number of women who've wanted me to come speak on that subject. Because it's not their subject. Does it make sense? I've not once had an alcoholic come to me and say, you know, alcohol destroyed my life. Would you please preach on that on Sunday? I really want everybody to know how devastating this is. No. But I've had plenty of people who don't drink at all tell me that that's really what they want my next series to be on because they see it's devastation. Does this make sense to you? I mean, I could go on like this for a couple of weeks. You know? Uh, and all you got to do is pick your, your people. Um, and these so-and-sos point at those so-and-sos, and those so-and-sos point at those so-and-sos, and it's a little circle. And before you know it, you have divisions and strife, and there's no unity there. And Jesus says, no, 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 we got to get past all of that. And by the way, I look at your heart. I'm looking at your heart, and I see all of you clearly, Jesus says. And... Um, You know, whatever you're thinking about throwing, you might want to put that down. Because we're all in this together. And the sooner we figure that out, the better the world's going to be. We're all in this together. So let me ask you the question. Are you intentionally building relationships with the kinds of people Jesus befriended? When I was a little kid, they used to have this Wolf Brand Chili commercial. Anybody know that commercial? And and they would have this little can, and they'd go, wham, right on the counter. And they'd say, When's the last time you had a hot steaming bowl of Wolf Brand chili? And then they'd wait and wait and wait. And then this deep voice would go, well, that's too long. So imagine with me a big old can wrapped around sinners. And let me put it down in front of us. Wham. When's the last time you had an intentional breakfast, people over for dinner or lunch or outing with somebody who was far from Jesus? with the sole intention of simply loving them and blessing them, regardless of their response. Well, that's too long. Right? What I find both lovely and disturbing is that at Acts 2, like many churches, and this is obviously true in my own life as well, that you find a group of people that are like-minded. They want to transform the world. They want to be transformed by Christ. They want to make a difference in the world. And so they gather. Some of them go to small group together. Some of them um, come around church. Some of them do mission work or go to small group or, or youth group or work in the children's department. And, and they, sometimes they're baptized and they give their life to the Lord. And within about a year, normally it doesn't take more than a year, I'll say, well, hey, you know, let's bring one of our friends who's far from the Lord to church. Let me ask you. Next week, Palm Sunday, coming into Easter, why don't you invite one of your friends that are far from Jesus to come along with you, just see what it's about, because it's important to you. How many of you all have 
a friend that you know does not have a church home and does not know Jesus? Anybody? Some of you do, right? The longer we are in this life, the fewer those folks we run with. And that's not, that's not all bad. I'm, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to have Christian fellowship. We are. That's, that's what empowers us to be in right relationship with other people. Does this make sense? You, you need both. You need that inflow and the outflow that we talk about. Because if it's all inflow, it's the Dead Sea. Nothing can live there. We have to have that outflow where we're sharing the love of Christ with others. And friends, it's not for their conversion. That's the Holy Spirit's work. You don't have to worry about apologetics. You don't have to worry about working people through the four spiritual laws or through the Roman road or whatever sort of um, contraption you may have been taught growing up in a religious circle. Uh, That rarely works these days, by the way. What people are looking for is an authentic representation of God in the world. His love living out for others. And if they see that in you and you love people, they will come to know Christ by your witness, or at least they'll have an opportunity to. And the Holy Spirit will let you know the day that they need a prayer, the day when they're ready to receive a blessing, the day that they're ready to hear about your Lord and Savior who has changed all of your life. Because it can change theirs too. But we have to stay in close contact, friends. Christianity is a contact sport. It is. It's a contact sport. You, You can't love people from across the way. And hope that they'll get it. It's contagious, friends. So Jesus, how does Jesus feel about sinners? Jesus what? Loves sinners, right. And here's the second category. Jesus welcomed the outcast. Will you say that with me? Jesus welcomed the outcast. Well, what, what do we know about that? What's an outcast? In, in Luke 5, it looks like this. Once when Jesus was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He said, I do choose. I do. He touched him. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That's the power of God in the world. Now, biblical leprosy referred to a variety of skin disorders. Okay, it's not like it is today. Today, it's, it's pretty much known as Hansen's disease. But in, in Jesus' day, it could be any array of skin disorders, and it freaked people out. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have modern medicine. And if you had a skin disease, probably everybody else you touched was going to have it too. They were scared to death of this stuff because it was killing people. So these people would have to live on the very outskirts of town. They couldn't be with other people until they got cleared up. Can you imagine being a teenager in biblical times in, in Judea, you're all, on, you're all at the gate, right? I mean, any kind of skin disorder, I mean, it was a scary time, a scary, scary time. So the law commanded, commanded, the, God's law, the law of Moses, commanded these people to leave home and family and move away. The people who needed God most, they had to go away, go to the outskirts of town. And, and, and it said that what would happen is if, if you approached a leper, it was the leper's responsibility by law to raise up their cloak over their mouth so that they wouldn't infect anyone and yell out, unclean, unclean, I am unclean, do not come any closer so that people could walk away and around from you. Can you imagine what it would be like to be 10 or 8 or 12 or 16 or 20 and know that you would never receive a hug or a loving touch again in your life? It is on you, your responsibility to, to warn others of how dangerous you were and that you would never have a loving touch again in your life. This is who Jesus goes to, the outcast. And he touches them at great risk to himself. Yet Jesus reached out and touched the man, sores and all. It doesn't say that he healed him and he touched him. He said he touched him and he was healed. That's a pretty significant difference, don't you think? 
And we are to go to people where they are, sinners and outcasts. This is who God is in the flesh in Jesus. So let me ask you, who are the modern day untouchables? Who are they to you? Because people are still asking the question, Lord Jesus, if you are willing to make me clean. And we are the hands and feet of Christ today. And will we too say, we choose. We choose. We see you. We choose. Now, in my lifetime, that's come a long way. That It was a much broader group when I was younger. Um, particularly with folks uh, with disabilities. Um, wild differences. When I was a little boy, uh, people uh, who were otherly abled uh, were largely on the outside. People with mental illness uh, were institutionalized. Uh, there was no mainstreaming of kids in school when I was a little boy. And that's all happened within about the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I'm almost 50 now, but in, in those first sort of 10 years of my life, there were all kinds of people that were on the outside. I mean, we were just a few years away from having separate water fountains, separate schools. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot, a lot has changed since 1960, but I would submit to you, we, we've got a ways to go. Do you, do you think there are still untouchables in your life? I know every time we go on a mission trip, there's at least one kid with a snotty nose that looks pretty sketchy that I'm like, I'm not touching that. I mean, seriously, when I was in Nigeria, I, I looked, or, or when we were in Rio Bravo making casitas for these uh, Mexican families, uh, or whether we're in Guatemala, and there's, there's just always a couple kids, or certainly when I was in Turkey with the Syrian refugees, you know, these, there's always a kid or two that you, you kind of feel like, you know, he, he's sitting at least where Creighton is, and I feel like if I take a step here, I'm going to have diarrhea for a month. I mean, you can just kind of feel, and, it, and there's, there's something that happens inside of you as a human, like, this is dangerous. And, and the reality is, as many of you have gone on those trips, you, you do come home with diarrhea for a month. It, it's, it's not fantasy. I mean, those things happen. It's real. They have different bacteria and things over in different places. What I want you to see, though, is that Jesus steps into it anyway. And I just wonder how many of these things can we ignore and still call ourselves as followers? I mean, how, how many? Jesus touched the man's sores and all. Now, that's one section. Another set of outcasts uh, was about religion. Uh, certainly when I went to uh, Turkey uh, last Thanksgiving, people wondered, what in the world are you doing? Uh, the 12 million folks hanging out in Turkey are Muslims. What are you doing? Those aren't Christian refugees. Those are Muslim refugees, which I'm like, also known as God's children. Right? And how are they supposed to know the love of Christ if none of the Christians go and let them know about the love of Christ? Or, or example for that. You see, as it has always been, there were outcasts because of a religion. Where people just don't want to have anything to do with that other religion, whatever that other religion may be. Because we find it dangerous, or unsettling, or scary. Now, the religion of Jesus' time that was really, really bad. There was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it goes back eight centuries. That's your blank there. Eight centuries, friends. 800 years. Now, I would remind you that America is less than 300 years old, so uh, this is more than twice as long as we've even been a country. They hated these folks. And, and if, if you're a Bible scholar, you know um, that there used to be a united monarchy under David, and everybody loved that, a man after God's own heart uh, and his son. Solomon and, and all the glory with that. But 
But by 586 BC, it was a mess. And Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in 722. And, and were taken over. Uh, and they took many of the people. Um, and they tried to stay strong, but, but many of them didn't. They intermarried Assyrians and Jews. And, and their mixed children are known as Samaritans. And if you were a Jewish person who then later in the southern kingdom of Judah uh, was overrun by Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the powers of Babylon in 586 and the loss of the temple, you remembered that story that, that there was also intermarriage there. And, and the prophets would say, look, if you want to know why our whole world is blown up, you have to learn from the mistakes that have been made. And often to try to make sense of their situation, they would point to the intermarriage of Jews and Assyrians. And they would say, this is why, one of the main reasons why we are in the mess that we're in. So don't get close to a Samaritan. Don't let their shadow cross you. Don't get close to them. Don't talk to them. Nothing. Nothing. You see, Jews frequently went out of their way to avoid Samaria. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Uh, do we have the map? Can I show them the map, maybe? There it is. Okay, so you see Samaria right here, right? Uh, here's the Sea of Galilee up here. Here's the Jordan River. Here's Jerusalem, Jericho, just a few miles over. Uh, the Dead Sea is going to be right over here, uh, Qumran, and on, on down. But you can see Samaria right here, right? And so Jesus uh, lives up here. During most of his life, he comes down to the temple this way. Uh, is how good uh, God-loving Jews would do it. You'd have to go through the Jericho Road, which was very dangerous, or you would go through Samaria. Those were your choices. Those were your choices. Now, I want you to see um, what happens in John 4 when this story. Jesus left Judea, right? And so Judea is in the desert right over there by Jerusalem and started back to Galilee up in the north. But he had to go through Samaria. Is that true? Is it physically true? No. Jesus has got himself. He can do whatever he wants to do. Not to mention the fact that most of the people did not go through Samaria. They went up the Jordan along the water source, but not Jesus. So why does it say he had to go through Samaria? What's going on there? Because clearly he didn't, and everybody who read the story knew that he didn't. The Holy Spirit of God had a hold of his heart and said, No, Jesus, you're going to Samaria. To be obedient to the Father, to live the perfect, sinless life, Jesus had to go through Samaria. It wasn't about geography. It was about the Spirit of God living in the world because he had something to teach us. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar. You saw that up in the north, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, uh, where we would find Jacob's well today. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon, about noon. Now, I don't know, again, those of you who've been on mission trips, you go and you're putting in a well. Uh, does anybody go to the well at noon? No. That's the worst time to go to the well. When do people go to the well? About five in the morning when it's cool. You would never intentionally come to the well at noon. That was dumb. It'd wear you out, particularly if you had an hour or two walk on either side of it. A Samaritan woman came to draw water at noon, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, uh, do rabbis talk to women? No. Do rabbis talk to Samaritan people? No. Would a rabbi under any circumstance talk to a Samaritan woman? If we're in a different context, we'd say, mm, no. Right? No. Never under any circumstances would you talk to a Samaritan woman, and certainly not one that comes at noon. 
you have to ask yourself, why is she there at noon? You see, Jesus chose to go to Samaria. He chose to go to her. And look how the story continues. Just then, the disciples came. His followers, those that knew him best. And they were what? Right? As Joel would say. What is he doing? Has he lost his mind? Is he trying to get us killed out here? He was speaking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Because he was up to something. He was changing the world. Then the woman left her jar and went back to the city. She did. And, and, and do you know um, what she said to the people? She said, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah. Can he? Somebody who should have known nothing about Jesus could see exactly who he was. Now, I will note in the, in the conversation between her, he didn't candy coat it. He, he didn't step around any of that. He said, what are you doing here at noon? You see, because all the other women would have been there at 5 or 6 in the morning. What, what that tells you is that she wasn't welcome even among the outcast. And he says, oh, where's your husband? She goes, well, he's like, no, no, I know. You've been married and divorced five times, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I, I got it. But seriously, you're here by yourself at noon. That's not even safe. What, do, what are you doing? Like, there's more to life than this. Come on. That's for me, living water, real water, real change of life. It's still there for you. It's still there. And Adam Hamilton writes this, and I, I want you to see the power of this. And if you are a person who tweets, I invite you to tweet this out. A woman who had been divorced five times and was living with another man became the first missionary to the Samaritan. That's who God chooses. Do you see the blasphemy in that? It's, it's, it's trying to find the, the most outsider outside. It, it's the lowest of the low. It, I mean, it, it was a Samaritan. It was a woman. It was a woman who had been divorced not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. And the other women wouldn't even hang out with her. And this is who Jesus goes to. And friends, if Jesus will go to her, Jesus has come to you. There's nothing you have done. There's nothing you can do that puts you outside the love and grace of God. And he will wait in the noonday sun in the middle of a desert for you if that's what it takes. Or a cross. But somehow we just get used to that, which is beyond me. But whatever, friends, he, if you'll go to her, he's coming to you. He will go to you. He has come to you. Receive him. Receive that new life. And then finally, we know that Jesus cared for the poor. All the time. It wasn't a mission trip. It was a part of his life. Part of kingdom life. There's not a day or a time that you don't see Jesus working with the poor. Either feeding them or ministering to them or teaching them or helping them out. It was a part of life in the kingdom. Uh, Luke 14 says it like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. This is Jesus' first sermon in the synagogue at Capernaum. Right there on the Sea of Galilee. This is what he's about. Now, he's quoting Isaiah, of course, but this is what the life is about. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. That's what kingdom life is about. Now, I know that this can make some of us uneasy uh, because particularly around Oklahoma and the Midwest, 
uh, we have a revivalist Christianity that's been around for about 150 to 200 years that basically says if you, you know, profess Jesus Christ with your lips, you will be saved. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not. I want you to see how Jesus judges us by Jesus' own words in the Gospels. In Matthew 25, this is, how, this is what happens about our salvation, that we work out with fear and trembling before God, according to Paul. This is what Jesus says. Here are the criteria that I will use to judge on that day because we will all see Jesus face to face. I believe that every person on the planet, both Christians, non-Christians, we're all going to see Jesus. And some of us are going to say, yay, Jesus, I'm so happy to see you. And other people are like, oh, no, this is really real. I didn't know. And Jesus is going to say this to us. I was hungry, and he gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and he gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger. I was an outcast. I was a sinner. I was on the outside. I was poor. And you welcomed me in. I was a prisoner and you visited me. You took care of me when no one else would. And if you wonder when you did that, I will tell you that inasmuch as you did this ever to one of the least of these, you have done it to me. These are Jesus' words. This is how we're judged. There is no other standard. And if you don't want to believe Jesus here, you can look at other writings that are even more ancient that says we're going, to, we're going to judge folks on how we care for the widows and the orphans in the world. That's what it is to walk in the justice of God. This is how Jesus judges us. And so I know, particularly around here, that, that we like to think, oh, well, you know, I got mine, it's good. You know, I went through confirmation or, uh, you know, I went to camp and, and I said the prayer, so, so I'm good. Uh, but... Jesus' brother James says it like this, faith without works is dead. If you have given your life to Jesus and he actually lives in you, then your life needs to look like Jesus' life. And you need to do the things that Jesus did. You need to sound like the things that Jesus sounds like. You need to have the friends that Jesus had. This is who Jesus is. And I know this parable can be unnerving to people who have been taught that the only thing required of us to go to heaven is simply accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. But in the Gospels, Jesus also says that not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will be entered into the kingdom of God. He says that. The true sign that we trust in Christ as Lord is that we, what? Follow him. It's not about mental assent. Talk is cheap. Follow him. That's what he says, right? What's the first thing he says to the disciples? Come and follow me. That's Jesus' command. Follow me. Follow me. And it is good, friends. It is the chance of a lifetime. And so, not to be too elementary, but let's look at our action steps. I think you know them by now. One is what? We do what around here? We love sinners. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners. And then we do what? We welcome outcasts. Say it with me. We welcome outcasts. Why? Because Jesus welcomes outcasts. Right? And thirdly, we do what? We care for the poor. Why? Because Jesus cares for the poor. And do you see how simple this is? This is the Christian life. Very simple. Not easy. Not easy. May the Lord help us as we also turn our hearts and minds to Jerusalem and the passion and the glorious resurrection of Easter in his life and in ours. Amen? Amen.